Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, new concerns are raised about vaccine side effects. Obviously, we're following closely uh, developments in the United States, and uh, we can ensure, assure uh, everyone that Health Canada will, every step of the way, uh, put the health of Canadians first and foremost. Uh, in any decisions we make around uh, distributing vaccines. The Chinese ambassador says two Canadians detained in China are not being mistreated. We have zero information other than what the Chinese government gains to allow us to learn, and that's very little. And Jagmeet Singh says he won't vote against the Liberal budget, even if his party's demands are not met. Imagine the budget is introduced a confidence motion, uh, motion, and we vote against this triggering election in the middle of a third wave. Ontario is in a lockdown. Numbers are increasing across the country. People are, are angry and frustrated and, and afraid. Uh, that would be the wrong thing to do. It's Wednesday, April 14th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by longtime political writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. Dan, thank you for being with us today. Hi, Mark. Let's talk about vaccines, because the rollout continues across the country, but new concerns are being expressed about potential side effects, uh, both in Canada and the United States. And I know initially when when issues surfaced, people were uh, cautious about it, and and there was research that was done right away, and, and there were medical professionals saying, don't worry about the vaccines, because they're... Uh, health issues can arise with anyone, even if, you know, whether they've just had a vaccine or not, it doesn't prove anything. But these concerns sound a little bit more serious. And, and of course, this all, this news arises at a time when, in some parts of North America, there's significant debate going on about whether vaccines are safe generally. So what do you think about the effect this is going to have? Well, it is increasing public concern and public uncertainty because that is a very important uh, element in all this. I think people uh, want to have uh, specific information that is reliable and trustworthy. And um, we all can't be epidemiologists there. I can barely say it. So, you know, it's um, a lot to put on the ordinary person in the public to be able to absorb the information in these, uh, you know, technical reports or to even understand the statistical risks that are there. I mean, the, the you know, the number of problems of blood clotting from the Astra uh, Zeneca vaccine and, and apparently potentially from the Johnson & Johnson one are, are vanishingly small. I mean, uh, you know, six cases out of 6.8 million uh, vaccinations is a very, very low number. And uh, I think almost all vaccines uh, have some element of risk. But, um, you know, it is contributing to this sort of public uncertainty and uncertainty is a bad thing when you need massive public buy-in in order to uh, defeat something that is uh, finding its way into all pockets of our society and our communities. Yeah. Yeah, that uncertainty is not helpful, that's for sure. Let's talk about Canada and China and the Chinese ambassador saying that two Canadians who have been detained in China, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, have not been mistreated. I know a lot of Canadians would disagree with that notion. Um, where did we, we thought, I think, a couple of months ago that there was some starting to be some light at the end of the tunnel for this story. Uh, where do you think we stand right now? 
Well, you know, that's really hard to, to know, Mark, because, uh, you know, on one hand, you have Canada uh, trying to get uh, the two Michaels out of jail in China, or at least try to understand what is going on, because, you know, the, the Chinese legal system uh, is a black box. There is no transparency, well, let alone accountability, and especially not to uh, uh, foreign countries like us. Uh, so basically, we have zero uh, information other than what the Chinese government gains to allow us to learn, and that's very little. Uh, but most Canadians, as you alluded to in your question, most Canadians consider arbitrary arrest, arrest imprisonment, and solitary confinement and things like that to be uh, human rights violations, even for suspected murderers. Um, or, or any type of uh, person suspected of, uh, of, of illegal activity. <clears throat> you know, in this country, you just don't get rounded up in a, on the street by uh, guys who jump out of a van and put a hood over your head. Uh, there's a name for that in most places, and that's not uh, legal arrest. So, you know, I, most Canadians who are following this at all feel that our two fellow citizens have been abused by the Chinese and potentially illegally detained or detained under such specious circumstances that it's not legitimate. So, you know, it, it's hard to move a, move something ahead when we don't really know what's going on. So in terms of the two Michaels, the Chinese have all the information, and the Canadian government, I'm sure, knows more about it than it's able to say publicly for good reasons. But um, in terms of where the public gets left on this, we're just saying what is going on and why is this not uh, being resolved? You know, meanwhile, these, um, uh, you know, these charges against Meng Wanzhou that started all this, you know, the, the billionaire, uh, the Chinese billionaire who was uh, detained in Vancouver on her way to, the, uh, to a third destination uh, at the request of the Americans. And so far, the Americans have done, so far as we can see, publicly at least, very little except a, a couple of statements of, co of concern from the uh, from the Biden administration. So, uh, you know, it, it's just a very frustrating, ongoing uh, matter. And here's two people who appear to be caught up in these events who are, who are paying a heck of a price uh, yeah. for the machinations of international politics. Yeah, very true. All right, let's talk about next week's federal budget, Dan. Jagmeet Singh is saying he won't vote against it, even if uh, the conditions that he has set, the expectations, the demands he's made uh, are not met. Um, but what are you, we're hearing things about child care, about base, uh, universal basic income. What do you expect from the federal budget? And do you think it could trigger an election, or is that much less likely now? Well, it's always possible that it would. If the Liberals came up with something surprisingly irresponsible or off the sort of national agenda, I mean, you know, all the political parties uh, quite rightly are preoccupied with the pandemic and the response of the federal government to that. Um, but there is other stuff going on. Um, and uh, it does appear from the, some of the reporting that the Liberals are going to wade further into uh, the child care uh, business. So we'll see where that goes. I mean, obviously, that is something that would be supported, I think, uh, by the NDP or by progressive voters. Um, and it's something that could help to isolate conservatives in the sense that um, they would have to then say where they stand on 
on this idea. Um, you know, the prime minister was talking to the opposition leaders this week on the phone, and uh, you know, it sounds like he had an interesting conversation with uh, uh, Yves Francois Blanchet from the Bloc Québécois. So, you know, it, it sounds like he's going out and making friends when he needs them, uh, just at budget time. Uh, I do find I find it interesting too that Jagmeet Singh is saying, "Well, we're not going to have an election because that's what the Liberals want. So therefore, we're not going to uh, call them on the budget because that's giving them something they actually want." So it, I mean, these are the crazy uh, leaps of logic that you get into in a minority situation. Yeah. All right. Uh, this week, of course, the federal government put in place a bailout for Air Canada that includes an ownership stake for a time uh, for uh, taxpayers. Um, there's been a lot of discussion and reaction to that. What are your thoughts on the deal that was struck? Well, it's certainly not unprecedented, Mark. Uh, you'll probably remember in the 08-09 financial crisis that uh, the federal government under the Harper government bought into uh, General Motors yeah, and actually sat on the shares for quite a long time to the point where the shares bounced back in the market and were worth more than what they paid for them. And uh, I think you might also remember that the Harper government sold those shares on the eve of a budget to make it appear that the balance, uh, the budget was balanced. So, uh, I mean, this is a much smaller stake, relatively speaking, in, in Air Canada than what was there in GM. But it gives, I think it's a, a prudent uh, step, you know, to have a seat at the table, to own a big chunk of the shares, and that means that senior management at Air Canada has to actually listen to what you're saying rather than just take the money and do whatever it was going to do anyway. So, you know, these bailouts are always controversial, but I think uh, the government has learned over the years that if you know if you can buy into GM and Chrysler, you can probably also buy into uh, Air Canada and uh, and and make a wise choice for uh, the Canadian people in terms of protecting the economic interests. It's not a giveaway, so uh, that's a, a step in the right direction, I think. All right, Dan. Great to have your thoughts on all of this today. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, Mark. That's Dan Legere, longtime political writer and broadcaster. We know that public health restrictions currently in place to prevent the spread of COVID-19, such as enhanced hygiene and physical distancing, have had an impact. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Globe and Mail, Gary Mason writes, Canadians have tuned out public health officials. Mason writes, we have heard public health officers across the country speak almost every day for the past year, and often their mantra is the same. Their authority has also been undermined by fellow medical professionals who have publicly challenged their advice, and it hasn't helped that some of the messaging has been vague and confusing. Sad to say, I think most Canadians stopped listening some time ago. Complacency and frustration is now the order of the day. At National Newswatch, Ed Broadbent and Leila Sarangi argue it's time for real Serb amnesty for those living on low incomes. They write, Serb repayment amnesty for those on low incomes is an opportunity to support people hit hardest during the pandemic. The evidence is clear that Indigenous peoples, immigrants, racialized people, disabled people, women and youth transitioning out of care are among those who have been disproportionately harmed. 
people living on our country's lowest incomes will never be able to repay thousands of dollars of Serb debt without serious detriment to their health and well-being. In the Toronto Star, Linda McQuaig argues most Canadians don't have to fear a wealth tax. McQuaig writes, A wealth tax would be the simplest, fairest, and most effective way to collect billions in extra revenue a year and to limit the power and political influence of the billionaire class. And if you don't have $20 million, it's not coming for you. Finance Minister Christia Freeland's mandate letter from the Prime Minister called on her to identify additional ways to tax extreme wealth inequality. This is not rocket science. Canada's wealthy are sitting on more wealth than ever before. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Indigenous Services Minister will give his weekly update on the COVID-19 situation in Indigenous communities around the country. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more on what to watch for. Mark, as much of Canada hunkers down to the onslaught of the third wave of COVID-19 with its more threatening variants, it's very interesting to hear some of the better news in terms of the fight against the virus. Canada's Indigenous communities, because of their socioeconomic conditions, their crowded and isolated nature, and their lack of healthcare facilities, are supremely at risk faced with the virus. And yet, if last week's briefing by Minister Miller and his senior officials was any indication, those communities are also showing some of the most impressive results in fighting the pandemic. A concerted effort by federal authorities targeting of resources and the buy-in and hard work of Indigenous communities themselves means that 60% of adults in 612 communities have received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. And for the past weeks, infection rates have been steadily declining and case fatality rates are now half of the national average. But mark progress as we have learnt with this virus, especially in this third wave, can never be taken for granted. So we'll watch with interest the latest report from Minister Miller at noon today. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will start the day in private meetings. He will also virtually attend the Liberal Caucus meeting before attending question period. Public Safety Minister Bill Blair will make a funding announcement related to fighting human trafficking in Edmonton. Health Minister Patty Haidu will announce funding for projects that support people living with opioid use disorder in Toronto. Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna will attend a virtual event. Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc will speak at an event on Principle 3 of the Paris Call for Trust and Security in Cyberspace. And Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino will make an announcement about helping essential workers and others with temporary status stay in Canada permanently. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, April the 14th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.